Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 22nd of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, the Dáil debated a motion of no confidence in the Minister for Health yesterday, but as Simon Harris defended his record in health inside Leinster House, the health service locally was on the brink of collapse, it seems. The ambulance service for the North East was so understaffed it struggled to deliver a service. Sources close to the ambulance service have told this programme that new staff rosters in two areas of the North East, Monaghan and Castle Blaney, mean increasing staff numbers rostered for duties there. Our sources say, however, that additional staff have not been put in place. This has had the effect of drawing on existing staff to cover more shifts, causing situations to arise where only one staff is rostered for a shift that requires two people. Stations affected last night include Drogheda, RD, Virginia, Monaghan, Castle Blaney and Dundalk, where there was only one staff member instead of the four required. The local ambulance service was nine staff members short in all last night. This in addition to training that is ongoing for the introduction of the new electronic patient care reports further deprived staff from taking up their frontline duties. Also, staff in Blaney have been told that although extra shifts have been allocated to the station, no more ambulances are available to them. Our sources say this means that if both ambulances are out on a call, a crew could be left sitting without a vehicle to respond in. Louise O'Reilly is a Sinn Féin TD and her party's spokesperson on health. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I, I think uh, uh, you had a long list of uh, complaints about health services uh, that you brought to the attention of Dáil Éireann last night. Uh, it's incredible to think that this was going on outside. It's absolutely, uh, unfortunately, not incredible. It's incredible indeed because uh, we know it goes on all the time. Uh, the HSE is struggling from one crisis to another. The leadership coming from government is almost non-existent. And last night, what I saw was uh, Fine Gael rally in uh, not too convincing a way. Uh, the minister was damned with a lot of faint praise during our no-confidence motion last night. Um, but Fianna Fáil uh, stood back and they said, well, we're happy enough with this government. We want this government to continue. Unfortunately, I don't believe that this minister is capable of uh, of leading the health service and providing 
the type of leadership um, and governance that is absolutely necessary to ensure that we can turn our health service around. And it is absolutely ironic that while uh, Fianna Fáil were defending the, the minister and ensuring that he kept his job, people living in, in Louth and Monaghan and the surrounding areas uh, without knowing it, we're facing the, the, the prospect of uh, serious issues regarding their ambulance. Because, I mean, Michael, your listeners will know this as, as well as you know yourself. You don't think about the ambulance until you're picking up the phone and dialing mm. 999. Do you know, it's not mm. something that you that you keep an eye on to check. But um, is it dangerous to be aggressive. short nine members of staff, a uh, situation where one person is in place where four are required, where we have ambulance personnel without an ambulance? Having ambulance personnel without an ambulance is, is just is, is an absolute disgrace. And, you know, in our alternative budget, Sinn Féin provided for investment, which would have seen a minimum of two additional ambulances deployed in each of the regions. And, you know, that, that was by way of, of starting off. And, and we would obviously have built on that. But, I mean, what you're seeing here is, is, is a combination of all of the issues that we were discussing last night in the Dáil. It's a recruitment and retention crisis. It's a failure to plan. It's a failure to invest. And of course, now with the catastrophic overrun on the children's hospital, which would be at least 450 million euros, we're told that certain capital projects are going to have to be. And I'll, I'll say this word slowly because it's one that the government are introducing into into the the, the language. Fianna Fáil have, have have grabbed onto it very mm. tightly, but they use the term reprofiled. So you know what I would be asking, and, and certainly what uh, what Amelda Munster, Quivino Quailon. Uh, Jerry Adams and others are going to be asking is have additional ambulances um, been are they in the pipeline and if they are is that going to be reprofiled because this is uh, this is an investment and the scale of the overrun in the children's hospital is obviously going to mean that uh, that there's going to have to be certain cutbacks we saw that uh, last night when uh, Dr Harty from Clare. Uh, voted for, uh, voted with Sinn Féin, voted no confidence in the Minister for Health, and that was over uh, the reprofiling, as they call it, of a 60-bed unit for Limerick, which now won't be uh, on stream in 2019, and they've pushed it back to 2020 or even further back. He that. was one of the 53 TDs uh, that voted against the Minister. It may be of surprise uh, to people locally to learn that Peter Fitzpatrick was one of uh, the TDs mm-hmm. that voted against the Minister, and the Minister barely survived uh, the vote 58 to 53, but he has mm-hmm. survived. And when we talk about this story this morning uh, about the crisis in the ambulance service locally, I suppose it pales in comparison because there wasn't a tragedy last night, or to put that another way, uh, nobody died or was uh, given care in a, a way that failed them, that has come to our attention at, at this stage. Uh, but you added to the list or the case that you made against the Minister last night about what you described as the failed scoliosis action plan, the 27-week wait for the results of cervical smear tests, uh, the record-breaking waiting lists, how nurses and midwives have taken to the picket line, his role, the minister's role in uh, the cervical check scandal, the recruitment and retention crisis in the health service, children waiting for speech and language therapy, for occupational therapy, how older people are waiting months for home support, the crisis created in GP practice, general practice, and the €2 billion that's spent on agency staff. You said that the overspend in the National Children's Hospital was the final straw, but the Minister has survived. 
the minister survived with the uh, with the help and assistance of Fianna Fáil. And I think uh, it's absolutely, you know, it's not going to be lost on your listeners either that uh, nobody expressed uh, confidence outside of the, uh, the, the the government benches. Nobody expressed confidence in this minister, but only Sinn Féin had the courage to stand up and uh, and indeed put a motion down. Because, you know, I, like, I go out canvassing all the time. Like, I was in Balbriggan mm. on Monday evening. And when I knocked on people's doors, then these may not all be Sinn Féin voters or supporters, by the way. But what they're saying to me is, how can he be left in charge of that project when yeah. he has just proven himself incapable of doing the job? Well, Thomas and Byrne, a local Fianna Fáil TD, told us the only frustration he's hearing from people is from Fianna Fáil supporters, and they're terribly frustrated. Yeah, I would doubt that uh, that the only frustration that, that, that's been <laughs> well, out there the most frustrated the then, if you like, yeah. <laughs> well, look, Fianna Fáil mm. don't have a monopoly on that. Uh, their membership certainly don't have a monopoly on frustration. But you know what well, I, I meant that they're frustrated with Fianna Fáil. Of course, uh, look at you, aren't we all? You know, I mean, what I'd be saying to Thomas and, and people like himself is you could have ensured that there was a change of personnel there last night. Um, I'm not quite sure. I mean, the, the arguments that, that Fianna Fáil put forward for supporting the minister or facilitating him, I think is the word they used, uh, were fairly pathetic and threadbare. And I can tell you they looked very, very uncomfortable last night in the Dáil Chamber. They uh, they tried to launch a few attacks on Sinn Féin. They didn't land any punches, but they were uh, they looked deeply uncomfortable. The government so didn't know. look uncomfortable, though, did they? Uh, the minister was flanked by eight ministers. Uh, the Taoiseach said he had full confidence in Simon Harris, and for many reasons. He said he's getting things done. He had a successful referendum on the Eighth Amendment. Uh, oh, he Michael, pointed... can, I, can I just interrupt you there? Right, because okay, I yeah, tell yeah, you, yeah, that yeah, drove yeah, me yeah. up the wall. The referendum, and I mean, people like my mother and father were campaigning for years, pro-choice activists for years, people like Alva Smith, um, indeed other deputies in the Dáil, uh, had been out campaigning on this for years. The minister came in and he facilitated the referendum, absolutely, but he couldn't claim any victory for that. Nobody on the government benches, for all of their laughing and, you know, nudging each other and swapping around their parliaments, Nobody on the government benches was able to point to any achievements uh, that they could attribute to the minister. I mean, they talked about the public health alcohol bill. Well, as Pierce Doherty pointed out, the heavy lifting on the public health alcohol bill was done by Francis Black and uh, by Marcella Corcoran Kennedy. They did all the legwork on it. The uh, Eighth Amendment was repealed by a massive grassroots movement. And to, to take credit for that, and I said that in my own contribution, was more than a little bit sad. There wasn't any single achievement that the minister could say, that is mine. The other thing, I mean, the, the well, well, three d- things d- that d- they d- said was Longicare. And I mean, Michael Harty had said last night, and he's a medical doctor, mm. the reason, one of the big reasons he was voting no confidence in the minister is because of his complete failure to deliver on Longicare. Well, I, I'm sure a lot of people would recognise Simon Harris as a, a significant role in the referendum campaign, but it's a campaign that started in 1983 uh, when the Eighth Amendment was introduced. Uh, Simon Harris was born in 1986, three years after that happened, uh, so he can't take full credit for it, and I'm sure the Minister would agree with that himself. Well, uh, no, but, I don't know that he would agree, because uh, well, <laughs> they appear to be trying to... I mean, the, the, the thing oh. was very evident last night, but they had so little to hang 
granted by way of achievement. Ah, well, now, the minute or the Taoiseach uh, spoke about the Public Health Alcohol Action uh, Act, uh, he spoke Again, about... Again, that predates the Minister's time in his ministry. That three was National was Hospital Projects under construction, a fourth There's year no to go to Hander. And we'll be paying for them for generations. Free GP <laughs> care has extended to all carers and medical cards for children. HPV vaccine for boys, improved patient outcomes in cancer, stroke, heart attack and cystic fibrosis. Uh, there isn't anything there, Michael, and the, like they couldn't list it last night. It was it was fairly pathetic. The defence wasn't exactly great, and the uh, discomfort on the Fianna Fáil benches was quite a sight to behold. I can tell you. All right. Well, let's hear a little bit of uh, the way the minister defended himself. Sinn Féin doesn't change to the ballot box and the armalite. They've added the soap box and the no confidence motion. Their stock in trade is still competitive anger and cultivated division, devoid of ideas their contribution to this chamber can be best measured in decibels. No wonder anyone expecting anything new or different from your leadership, Deputy MacDonald, has already lost hope. I reject your politics of division. My politics is to work across party, inside and outside this House, to deliver, to work together. I saw Sinn Féin tease smiling at uh, the witty way he referred uh, to the soapbox and to the no-confidence motion. See, the minister is is stuck in the old secondary school debating team circuit. You know, you won't win any favours by, uh, you know, throwing in a couple of well-crafted jibes. I mean, God knows he's enough of people on his staff to be writing the speeches for him anyway. But this, last night was about his track record. Last night was about the €450 million Euro overspend in the children's hospital, at least. Last night was about the fact that he knew about that. He went into uh, the budgetary process and he didn't tell his colleagues. And, you know, this is the same minister who we know loves to turn up for a photo opportunity, loves to uh, turn up in the hard hat and the high vis and turn the sod and do all of that. But he's not very fond of doing the follow-up work. And I think that was very evident last night. What he didn't do and what he couldn't do was list off concrete achievements that were his and his alone. I mean, it was very, very clear that, uh, and of course, I mean, it was a well-crafted speech. If I had that many people writing speeches for me, uh, I'd speechify all day and all night, Michael, because, you know, as you know, the minister is very fond of the old sound bites, and, and I'm sure a lot of people put a lot of effort into generating those few words. But he didn't land any punches on the opposition because what we were trying to do was uh, bring a little bit of political accountability. He didn't address that. And, you know, I mean, well-crafted and and, uh, silly attacks on Sinn Féin shouldn't, under normal circumstances, uh, save a minister with this sort of record. Well, thanks to the facilitation of Fianna Fáil, of course, he knew, I mean, he didn't have to list off any achievements, not that he has them, but he didn't have to even do that. Or so is that the end of it? Because he knew he, was going to be, uh, he wasn't going to be held to account because Fianna Fáil were going to assist him. Is that That's the end of it? the end of it. Because, uh, you know, I mean, the minister says he likes to work cross-party. I work cross-party as well. I work well with people in mm. the all. We've already seen the introduction of some Sinn Féin, uh, Sinn Féin policies, such as Colista. I put my heart and soul mm. into but that. But the doll has confidence in Simon Harris. Uh, indeed, I don't believe the vast majority of people in the doll have confidence in Simon Harris, but the vote um, yep. last night mm. 
uh, and the abstention of Fianna Fáil to facilitate the uh, the minister means that uh, that the minister continues in his job. But mm. there wasn't anybody outside of the government benches that expressed confidence in Simon Harris last but, night. But if that that is the way you genuinely feel, uh, have you achieved the opposite? Uh, because now there is confidence in the minister. There's no point in trying to hold him to account. Well, motions of no confidence are used by opposition parties. You know, I mean, when Fine Gael mm. were in opposition, I think they brought five of them. But he's the won it. time they were in opposition. Um, I don't believe anyone mm. uh, on the government benches won last night. I think what we did was we had a well, very vital debate. Mm. We put on record our feelings, because that's important. When I go and I knock mm. on doors in North County, Dublin, I want to be able to look people in the eye and say, I did everything I possibly could to hold this government mm. to account. And we still have opportunities to question, we have leaders' questions, we have ministerial questions, I'm the deputy chair of Yeah, the but let's say you go into the Dáil today and you say to Simon Harris, how is the Minister for Health? Can you stand over the situation last night where the ambulance service in the northeast was nine personnel short, uh, one for every four persons in all of the stations we listed off earlier on and there was a, a crew or the potential for a crew to be sitting uh, in the station without an ambulance to respond in? Uh, because surely you'll just say, well, I can do that because I'm the Minister for Health and the House has confidence in me. Well, you know, he still has to account to the dolls for his actions. He still has to come in front of the Health Committee and he still has to do his job. So I would hope that the very narrow victory and the words of uh, of deputies from all sides of the House outside of the, the government benches will um, get this minister to focus on actually doing his job and not just turning up for sound bites and photo ops. He has an extremely important job to do. He has abjectly failed to do it thus far. Last night might have served as a wake-up call for him, but certainly I will never apologise, Michael, for um, trying to bring political accountability. And just because Fianna Fáil aren't interested in Mm. political accountability, they certainly weren't when they were in government, and they're definitely afraid of it now. Sinn Féin won't sit idly by and allow this government to continue, and we will continue to hold it. Are are you concerned that patient safety was compromised locally here last night, and will that be an issue that will be raised? Yes, and, and I will be advising my colleagues uh, in the surrounding areas as well because it is very concerning. You know, as, as I said at the beginning of this, you don't think about the ambulance service till you pick up the phone and dial 999. So definitely we will be getting more information on that story and, and I certainly am happy to come back and share with you whatever information we get. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, Louise O'Reilly. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you may remember in November of uh, 2012, we voted in the children's rights referendum uh, to recognise and affirm uh, the natural and imprescriptible rights of all children and uh, that as far as practicable, the state would, by its laws, protect and vindicate those rights. As part of uh, that referendum and constitutional change, we also voted uh, to ensure that by law, the views of any child who is capable of forming his or own views uh, or his or her own views shall be ascertained and given due weight, having regard to the age and maturity of uh, the child. 
how this is working in practice was uh, discussed at uh, the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Justice yesterday and uh, Senior Lecturer at the School of Law at University College Cork, Dr. Conor O'Mahony, said uh, that we're failing our constitutional obligation under the children's referendum in protecting children and giving the children the rights uh, that they're entitled to as a result of that referendum in court and in family law legislation. Let's talk about uh, this with Saoirse Brady, who's Legal and Policy Director with uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Good morning to Saoirse and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, The Children's Rights Alliance also uh, appeared before the committee yesterday and suggested uh, that uh, there should be reform of the family law court system. Yes, we did. Thanks, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Um, yes, we appeared before the, the Joint Rockers Committee yesterday to talk about the structure of the family law courts and whether they were fit for purpose, particularly for children and young people. And also, we wanted to talk about the voice of the child because we run a legal information line. And what we hear from parents and children and young people who phone us is that they don't always know what's going on. They don't understand the decisions that have been made. And they, you know, they're kind of grasping for further information. They want, they want to know more about the proceedings. And sometimes they feel that, particularly children and young people, feel that their voice isn't heard, that they're not asked what they want in terms of custody access or guardianship arrangements. Mm. Well, this is uh, what's at the heart of this, uh, because a, a child is never in the family law court outside of what is not just a, a very serious situation, but possibly the most significant uh, situation that they've had to face it into in their lives and possibly will ever face into in their lives. Yes, and, you know, family breakdown is heartbreaking for everyone concerned, but I suppose you have to really think about how it impacts on the children and young people where decisions are being made about them. Um, they should have a say. And as you said, you know, we do have the children's, uh, the children's amendment in the Constitution mm. now. There has been um, some law reform in the area of family law. So, for example, the Children and Family Relationships Act was enacted in 2015 and it put children or tried to put children at the heart of family law matters. And for the first time, judges now have a list of what they should consider when they're making decisions in the best interest of the child. And one of those um, things that they should consider is the voice of the child and how they listen to them. But as we heard yesterday at the committee, um, you know, we presented along with Dr O'Mahony from UCC, we also presented with the Law Society, the Rape Crisis Network of Ireland. But, you know, what we really heard was that children aren't, you know, being listened to, that, that it's not really happening in practice. It hasn't filtered down to the courts. There is a thing called the Child's Views Experts. And there have been regulations put in place. Um, so these are these are meant to be people who are expert in trying to elicit the views of the child and present those to the court. So the court can make an order for child views experts. But the new regulations that have come out have um, actually placed the fees at quite a low bar. And I suppose we were all concerned yesterday that you're not going to get an expert for the money that you're talking about because... When, when you're bringing an expert in to talk to a child and find out what it is that they want, what it is that they feel and, and present that to the court, you have to spend quite a bit of time with them. You know, you have to build up um, a, a relationship of trust so that they'll actually talk to you and actually give you what their real views are. And you can't do that in one sitting. You have to actually meet with them a number of times. You have to meet with the parents. You have to make sure that 
you know, one parent isn't maybe influencing the views of the child more than the other, that, that you're actually getting to the heart of what the child wants. And quite often the parents are going to be at loggerheads. Uh, I think uh, yeah. at times uh, there's uh, the possibility of violence, and this was an issue that you raised uh, and uh, protecting the children from situations like that. Well, what we had said is in the courtrooms, you know, um, and we heard yesterday about the kinds of courtrooms that children and young people are going into where they are brought in um, in terms of family law proceedings. But they're they're witnessing, you know, upsetting behaviour, not only between their parents, possibly, but, you know, given where um, where these hearings happen. And OK, they happen in camera, so they're, they happen in private, but you're still in courtrooms where there are lots of other things going on like criminal law offences are heard by the judge just before maybe a family goes in so you know they are seeing maybe some violent behaviour in, co- in courtrooms um, and that's just not acceptable. The other thing we hear from lawyers is that there's a real basic lack of privacy they don't have private consultation rooms so lawyers are talking to um, families and perhaps children and young people as well in corridors or stairwells there's there's no privacy at all. There's no there's no consultation rooms. Never mind child friendly consultation rooms. And one of the things we were trying to get across is there is guidance out there on how you can make the system more child friendly. So you know, simple things like having a, an information officer in the courts that can talk to children and young people about the process, what it entails, who is who, what the judge does, what other officials in the court does. Um, you know, that would really help because I suppose when you explain things, and this, this comes up on in our information line as well um, through our Access to Justice project, but when you explain things to children in language that they can understand and you explain what's going on, even if it isn't the news that they were hoping for, they get it. And, you know, they learn to accept that. Um, but we're just not communicating effectively with children. And training is a big issue. Um, you know, we need, like, th- this happens in other places, you know, it happens in other jurisdictions that it, that judges and and um, legal professionals find ways to better communicate with children. We we used an example yesterday in the UK. There was a judge who actually wrote a letter to a 14-year-old involved in the custody case in really plain English, um, in really accessible language, to explain what was actually going on, so that the the child didn't have to read the judgment and try and figure out what was happening to them mm. and what decision had been made about them. The same judge, actually, um, for younger children, uh, produced a judgment using emojis, you know, something nice. you know, that's very yeah. visual that, that a child can understand, even at a younger age. Um, so, so there are ways around this. Um, mm. and it's a really tall order, though, I suppose, to yeah. expect judges, uh, all judges, to act in the way. That's exemplary uh, that that judge yeah. did in the UK. Uh, but uh, some other measures are a little bit easier to achieve. Uh, and the idea of separating children from those criminal cases by having separate family courts is one uh, that you've asked the committee to look at. Yes, and, you know, there, there has been talk of... Um, a new family and children's court in Hammond Lane here in Dublin. Like we, we work in Smithfield. We walk past that empty lot every day um, and kind of lament that it hasn't been, um, the construction hasn't started yet. And there is there has been money earmarked for it in the National Development Plan. But what we're hearing is it's probably not enough um, and that we need more. Um, but that is earmarked there. The judiciary want it. Um, legal professionals want it. Families want it. That's what we hear from members as well. Families who are going through the family law system say that 
it isn't fit for purpose, that they feel that it should be done differently. Um, and we really feel that, you know, we could make a real difference to, the, to these families and children in these really hard times for them by providing them with um, appropriate accommodation mm. in the courts. But, I mean, as we were saying at the outset, uh, they're not just hard times uh, to... Uh, a large degree, I, I gather at least, that they could be defining times in a person's life. Yes, they could be. Um, you know, the, the, like when you look at what, what happens to children um, and their kind of cognitive development, mm. family breakup, divorce, separation plays a big role in that. And, and that's what the science shows now. You know, that can have a huge and lasting impact on your life. So we really need to get it right. But, you know, there are other things that can happen, particularly, say, for example, around access. Um, There have been pilot projects that were really successful around contact centres where you provide a neutral ground for families and children to go there. Um, So a child can go there and meet with their other parent on neutral ground. They're not going into their home. They're not bringing that parent into the, the, the other parent's home. So it actually helps avoid conflict. Um, and the child feels safer and it's a child-friendly space. And, you know, we can look at things like that. We're, it's not that imaginative. It's actually really practical. And those were up and running for, for a number of years um, through Bernardo's and one family, actually, two of our members. Um, and the funding just wasn't reallocated. They'd actually be more cost effective in the long run. What we heard yesterday was mediation is another way that we need, you know, we need to look at that from the outset of a case. And and there is a mediation act now, which, you know, means that that lawyers are, they're, they're obliged to talk to their clients about mediation. Um, and we know that mediation can be quite successful. And even if it doesn't clear up all the issues in a family law matter, it can clear up most of them, you know, by sitting down talking with a facilitator who's trained in, in these um issues. So, you know, there are things that can be done um, apart from even just putting into place the the actual infrastructure. infrastructure yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we, we can do other things and I think we need to start doing them. There was a real sense of urgency yesterday at the committee and that's what I took away from it. And they are going to hold further hearings on this and they hope to have the report out um, before summer. And we think it's very timely because there has been some mm-hmm. reform as I mentioned, the Children and Family Relationships Act, the Domestic Violence Act as well came into force um, last year. Um, but more needs to be done. That was very clear from yesterday's discussion. Very good. Thank you indeed uh, for telling us about it this morning, Sersha, and for joining us on the programme. Sersha Brady, Legal and Policy Director with the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now we'll hear shortly why farmers fear being decimated as a result of Brexit and uh, this idea that Irish beef would be subject to tariffs of up to 70% and when you add everything in on top of that, uh, you could be talking about uh, an additional 84% uh, on top of the price of Irish beef in the UK, which wouldn't apply to Brazilian beef. As I say, we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but add into that the conversation that tomorrow the government will be publishing the emergency legislation so that we can deal with a no-deal Brexit after the 29th of March. The idea that there's a parliamentary revolt in the House of Commons, which has found it impossible to find a consensus over the course of the last two and a half years and how Mrs May was in Brussels for very little point it would seem yesterday meeting with Jean-Claude Juncker and a statement uh, that uh, gave no detail of anything concrete. It's hardly surprising 
to hear that businesses, small and medium enterprises, have said uh, that uh, the highest point uh, for concern uh, is today with Brexit worry at 30%. And business confidence has dropped from 1% to minus 4%. Neil MacDonald is a Chief Executive Officer of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. He's on the line. A very good morning to you, Neil, and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, I think you've felt all along uh, that there would be some compromise, uh, that a way out of this would be found somehow. How are you feeling about things today? Well, we certainly don't want to put a hex on what might or might not happen. Um, the problem is, Michael, there's been a lot of false dawns. I mean, if you go back to last year, we were we were told we would see something happening uh, in the in the uh, Brussels summit during the summer. Then we were told it'd be October. Then we were told it would be November. And and now there just appears to be complete uh, chaos in Westminster. This appears to be tearing uh, both the Conservative and Labour parties apart mm. and, and um, however much political wonks like to think that that's an amusing process to watch, that that sort of political meltdown means it's extremely difficult to get any sort of consensus on, on a negotiating position. And the risk of boxing ourselves or boxing themselves as the case may be into a collapse. Correct. And and if this stasis continues um, and there isn't a, a concluded withdrawal agreement by the 29th of March, then by definition, the UK leaves the uh, EU without an agreement and it goes to bog standard WTO rules. And then all of this, uh, the, the previous item you were talking mm-hmm. about, uh, the effect on agriculture and particularly beef prices, uh, takes hold and and it simply logically follows it's not that anyone is punishing anyone it's it simply logically follows under international trade rules that that's what's going to happen and that in itself would be devastating for this country it would have an impact on small and medium enterprises and the economy generally on all of us under standard of living of course it would um but it's not just the, the direct financial effect. I know mm. a lot of people focus in on tariffs and, and VAT, and I know the um, Minister Donoghue has announced uh, that he, he is the, the revenue is going to show uh, flexibility on import VAT, although we hope to see uh, the, the T's and C's of that tomorrow. Um, we, as yet, all we've seen is, is a press announcement on it. But the bigger issue is actually that of sentiment. And when this happens in an economy, um, economics isn't a mathematical science, it's a social science and uh, economics is about the functioning of, of people as actors within the economy uh, it's, it's a human science and, and we react naturally to bad news like this um, and so when people, uh, consumers citizens see that there is no progress happening on this issue and we're now just over a month on, until this kicks in it is natural that people hunker down they uh, d- develop uh, risk averse behaviours, they stop spending, they stop making decisions about what they're going to do in the future Yeah, yeah well I mean we've lived through it in recent times uh, with uh, the financial crash and, crash and uh, I suppose uh, as a, an example of, of that people will remember that they were told we'll be fine, the banks will be fine if people uh, don't take their money out of the banks and of course everybody ran to the bank and tried to take their money out straight away 
yes, and that's a really good example of the herd mentality that fears like this can kick off. Uh, of course, uh, there, there's nowhere you can take your money out in this uh, situation. Uh, this is an issue where um, basic commodities, although Ireland is a net food exporter, we tend to export um, low-value-added um, um, uh, cereals and uh, meat products, and we import refined uh, consumer products. So, of course, we're, nobody's going to go hungry, but there is no question that the typical diet on the on the breakfast, lunch and dinner table in Ireland is actually going to cost more if this comes to pass because we import so much of our processed food from the UK. Mm. Uh, but it, it's uh, the confidence uh, that you spoke of earlier on that uh, I was referring to there and the knock-on effect that that can have uh, and when confidence goes and you're already witnessing that to some degree uh, with uh, small and medium enterprises, uh, their confidence level has dropped and somewhat significantly it would seem. Yes, uh, I, I, it's gone, uh, it was at 1%. Uh, level in in Q3. Now this is of course in the lead up to uh, Christmas. Our, our quarterly surveys are done at the end of of each third month, mm. so this is in early December, uh, and it's gone to minus four. And what does that mean, Michael? Well, it's the difference. It's just uh, the the net figure in difference between those who are more confident and less confident. So, twenty four percent of people said they were more confident and 28 percent of people said they were less confident so we get that's how we get to minus four and that is the lowest figure we've had since 2011 uh, when when the unemployment uh, uh, and uh, economic contraction was really starting to bite uh, in in the fiscal and property crash so yeah it's a, it's a real indicator that small business is as worried about these things as as your typical citizen and consumer uh, and an indication of how pressing the matter has become for that matter. Neil, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us as always. Neil MacDonald, Chief Executive Officer of ISME. That's uh, the Irish SME Association. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Joseph has a number of points in relation to the ambulance, ambulance situation last night. Was listening in to your interview and he's wondering, what did the sh- staff shortages actually mean? Does it mean that there were ambulances that were not able to operate Don't and attend two calls? Don't know. If this is the case, it's madness Don't and know. someone needs to give answers. Don't know. Don't know the answers to any of the questions. We just uh, know the situation that uh, the ambulance service was in last night uh, and uh, our sources are sources are very reliable sources and they tell us that there was a significant understaffing of personnel for the service last night. Uh, we've asked the HSE, and if the HSE had told us, we would know, but we don't know because the HSE has not responded to us yet. We're waiting as soon yeah. as we get a response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe Tuesday. We'll pass it on. Yeah. Uh, Rathoth, listener, very worrying to hear about the shortage of ambulance crew in the northeast region last night. Our government is a total disgrace. How can the members of the Dáil support a confidence motion in Simon Harris, Minister for Health? A brave new government is needed. Finnegale and Fianna Fáil, please just admit it. Ye are one and the same political party. Mm. 
Deirdre, my God, it's, it's a disaster that there were not enough staff operating the ambulance service. We are talking life and death situation here, Michael. Well, uh, I mean, we could have had this really bizarre situation where there were enough staff to respond to a call, but no ambulance. It's just madness. Yeah. Teresa, wondering, does this enormous cost of the new children's hospital include fittings, furniture and equipment or has all that expense still to come she's also she also wonders about the huge problem in getting staff to actually work in the hospital mm, yeah well I mean that'll be a cost in itself as I understand the first part of the question uh, to some degree yes uh, I think one of uh, the overruns uh, in particular referred to, to IT uh, being more expensive than had been anticipated Noel, it's amazing how the so-called best Vinegale could do in the doll yesterday was to sneer and laugh at the opposing views expressed. It shows the nature of the beasts. Well, yeah, well, I'm not sure that they did sneer or laugh. I think it was a very serious debate and uh, I think there were very serious points made on both sides uh, and uh, I think uh, the government defended its record and pointed uh, to some of the achievements it has made uh, since taking office. When Mairead feels the Fine Gael have got too big for their boots, she felt that they were quite arrogant in the doll yesterday and seemed to be praising themselves a lot. Hmm. She says, there is so much wrong with our health service, but the latest scandals involving the National Children's Hospital overspend and the cervical smear tests uh, debacle have to be the worst yet. Then we heard this morning on your show about this crazy situation regarding ambulance staffing. What is the HSE at, Mairead Wonders? Don't know. Uh, We've asked them, but we don't know because they haven't answered and we're hoping that we'll get an answer from the HSE by Tuesday, uh, if not sooner, maybe in the next five or ten minutes, uh, we'll hear from them. As soon as we hear from the HSE, uh, obviously we'll bring you the response. And indeed, if the HSE would like to put forward a spokesperson, uh, well, apart from falling out of our standing uh, at learning that they're willing to come on the radio and talk to LMFM, uh, which they haven't done for a very long time, uh, we'd be delighted to facilitate it. But let's talk about some other issues and a very pressing issue. As you've been hearing, there's a lot of concern, particularly amongst farmers about Irish beef and exports of beef to the UK and how significant tariffs may apply, tariffs that may not apply to Brazilian beef. Uh, this is uh, the line that Michael Gove has been trotting out. The Irish uh, Farmers uh, Journal is reporting uh, today that uh, there's uh, severe and serious competition to face, not just from Brazil, but also Australia, Argentina and Uruguay. Pat O'Toole, news correspondent with uh, the Journal, is on the line. Good morning, Pat, and thanks for joining us. What's the story here? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, <clears throat> uh, the story is moving very fast. Um, on Tuesday, Michael Gove, who, as the Environment Minister, uh, has responsibility for agriculture, uh, he was at the conference of the NFU, which is the largest farming union in the, in England, and um, he pledged to support his farmers. He said that uh, British farmers would, would be protected post-Brexit by high tariffs being imposed on food imports. Now, that's bad news for Ireland, because uh, it would mean that uh, we would have to pay huge tariffs to get into the British market, which still half our beef goes in there. A lot, most of our cheddar goes to the UK. Um, <clears throat> very quickly, Meat Industry Ireland reckoned it would cost Irish beef farmers seven hundred and fifty million a year. Dairy Ireland, their counterparts reckoned it would cost uh, somewhere in the region of four hundred million to the dairy sector. So, uh, huge stakes being paid for. And, and you're talking about tariffs of seventy percent plus. Uh, the tariffs would vary. It would be up to about 40% uh, on agricultural commodities is about the highest rate. That would be, to put it in, in money terms, it's €3.04 plus uh, a, uh, on every kilo of meat that goes in, plus 12% of the value of the meat. So if it's cheap cut like mints, uh, say uh, burger mints, uh, mm. cheap, th- that would be doubled in price from about three fifty to to all close to €7. Euros. Uh, steak, then uh, you'd have an extra three euros onto uh, the, the retail price. So if you take it at retail, my goal say a, a steak goes from twelve to fifteen, and, uh, and plus the twelve percent on top, so that brings it up to about sixteen euros. So these are huge, uh, huge impositions. The, what tends to happen is that the supermarkets won't increase their prices mm. and uh, the cost of this is passed back to the farmer quite quickly. Now, that was Tuesday. Wednesday morning then, the story changed again because uh, we broke that Michael Gove had an, all, an, an additional plan to present the Cabinet and that was that a huge tariff-free quota would be created, uh, which would mean that um, a vast amount of beef in particular would be getting into the UK without having to pay this three euros a kilo. Now, on the face of it, that initially sounds like good news, but that tariff-free quota will be available not just to Irish beef processors, but to beef processors in the US, in Australia, in Brazil, Argentina. So we would now be competing in a race to the bottom, uh, where, in uh, I suppose, the wall, <coughs> the trade... Oh. It appears as though the line has dropped out on us there with uh, Pat O'Toole. We'll uh, try and get him back on uh, the phone uh, whilst uh, we try to do that. Uh, I'm not sure if it'll be possible. Uh, we'll go back to some more of your thoughts and comments. Marie, you've uh, a few more people I in sure touch do. there. I sure do. I definitely do, Michael. And they'll be glad to hear the comments. John from Navin phoned in. He can't understand how Sinn Féin seemed to have all the answers to all the health problems, both north and south, yet are so reluctant to get involved in actually governing each in either area. 
area. At the last election in the South, Sinn Féin stood back and refused to enter into a coalition with anyone and were still without a government in the North. If there's an election again in the morning, we'll see exactly the same from Sinn Féin. He believes they won't partner up with anyone, resulting in either a Fine Gael or a Fianna Fáil-led government and nothing will change. If they have the answer to everything as they claim, then they should put the money where their mouth is and actually get involved. All right, we'll come back uh, to more comments in a, a moment. Pat O'Toole is back on the line, Pat from Sorry the Irish firm. Not at all, Pat. I'm not sure what happened, uh, but thanks uh, for bearing with us uh, and coming back because this is obviously a, a hugely uh, important story. You were telling us uh, that there was the prospect of facing these huge tariffs. Then yeah. the idea that we may not have to pay these tariffs, uh, but uh, the bad news is uh, that we'd be uh, in uh, the same basket as Australia, Brazil, Argentina and yeah. Uruguay. And, and and I suppose this is the traditional British cheap food policy being brought back in. What protects uh, Ireland, uh, Irish farmers currently uh, is uh, the fact that we have the highest standards in Europe um, of production. And uh, it's quite difficult to, for importers uh, outside Europe to get vast amounts of product in here because of our elevated standards. Standards of traceability, of animal welfare, of environmental uh, uh, enhancement. Uh, so all of that is something that the British and European consumer have bought into. But uh, in a post-Brexit situation, the British can move their standards. And actually, that's what the backstop is really about. The backstop is a commitment that the Brit- Britain will... No. <laughs> I'm not sure. There's obviously some problem in the line, uh, but our, our thanks uh, to Pat O'Toole, news correspondent with uh, the Irish Farmers Journal there. Let's uh, hear more of uh, the comments and calls. Uh, Marie, uh, you yes. uh, say there were a lot of people in touch with us uh, about uh, the confidence motion last night. Yes, and Fianna Fáil uh, is mentioned in this one from Fran, mm. because Fran thinks the Fianna Fáil party is running with the hair and hunting with the hound, and the people must not forget that the Fianna Fáil party are the ones that bankrupt our country as a democracy he feels that the politicians should be made vote they're getting paid for doing nout <laughs> says okay. Fran uh, we had a couple of comments in in relation to our discussion yesterday regarding the demonstrations outside abortion service providers Pat from Bulbrig and got in touch says I love the show and I'm prompted to pick up the phone after listening to that woman d- talking about the demonstrations outside hospitals and GP clinics he says that I think these people should just the, leave those people alone that need to seek these services. They should mind their own business. They have too much time in their hand. Maybe go and get a job. Or if you can't get a job, you're retired. Maybe do some charity work. You should let people get on with their lives and you should just leave them alone. Liam, on the same topic, says that women uh, should be allowed to go into GPs or hospitals to obtain abortion services without having uh, people outside trying to intimidation and uh, intimidate and harass them because that's what he feels this is. He says the people gave their verdict on the vote and that we trust women and doctors to do the right thing and he'd go as far as locking up people who protest like this. That's very strong words. Uh, well, obviously, uh, those who are protesting are doing nothing law, uh, unlawful no. uh, and are acting completely legally uh, so there is no grounds uh, for that action as things stand. If I 
I can just leave the final word to Tony from County Loud who got in touch mm. following your interview with Minister Helen McEntee yesterday yeah. in relation to her conversation around the North-South interconnector. And he says it's nothing short of disgraceful that a sitting minister is trying to run with the hair and hunt with the hand with regard to this air grid project. She is clearly in conflict with her own government while trying to secure her next electoral votes by either pretending or genuinely being against this project in its current form and almost indicating, like Theresa May, that she's also running down the clock by delaying it until either different technology comes along or Brexit itself brings this important project to an end. Neither prospect is acceptable as this project is growing in expense all the time says Tony from County Loud. All right. Well, the Minister did say uh, that the government has its position, but as a, a TD and a public representative, uh, she feels obliged uh, to continue to make uh, the argument that the pylons uh, should not be in place and that the cables should run underground. Thanks, though, for that, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch, and remember that if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, Ireland, as you know, is a neutral country. Is that about to change? Well, whilst Brexit and crises relating to the health service may have dominated the agenda in recent weeks. Some would say we're about to change our neutral position and that it has gone unnoticed. The Dáil will vote today on a government motion to participate in a European Defence Agency project. The motion was introduced by the Minister for Defence, Paul Kyo. Uh, the night before last night uh, and he said uh, that this was a European Defence Agency project in relation to military search capability building persuading to Section 2 of uh, the Defence Miscellaneous Provisions Act 2009. Now he said the EDA is an agency of uh, the European Union and that uh, effectively we signed up to this in 2004. We approved participation in the framework of the EDA and we've participated in very various projects since then, maritime surveillance uh, to protect military forces engaged in operational activities, a programme relating to chemical, biological, radiological radiological, and nuclear protection, projects focused on counter-improvised explosive devices and so on. Uh, But there is a lot of concern about this change in terms of our participation. And let's find out now why Maureen O'Sullivan is an independent TD for Dublin Central and spoke against this motion and spoke about an EU army uh, and uh, how we may be forced into this army as a result of uh, this motion. Uh, Explain to us uh, the difference, if you would, please. Right, good morning. Um, I I was following on from Leader's questions I had last week with the Taoiseach. Um, and it was in the context that he and the ministers will be travelling throughout the world on Patrick's Day. And they will be extremely well received. And when we think about our small republic with a small population, over 300 venues throughout the world are going to be lit green. And I was making the point that that comes from the respect in which we are held internationally. And part of that respect comes from our neutrality, our peacekeeping missions, which have been second to none, and also from our development assistance, development aid program, which is very humanitarian, poverty focused. And I just feel that we are risking that good name by allowing ourselves to be drawn further and further into what is a European army. And there's no doubt that we are seeing an increasing militarization, securitization agenda in Europe. 
And I think we are at risk of, of losing that respect that Ireland has had um, in a way that, you know, a small island nation with four and a half million people would mm. not be expected to have. Right. Uh, the minister seemed mm-hmm. uh, to be saying uh, that uh, this would allow us to pr- mm-hmm. participate in military search yes. capability building projects. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, he referred to doing that in contested environments. Does yes. that mean war zones? Well, to me, that that's what they are. And you see, this is all part of the fact that we have joined up to PESCO as well. And when you look at PESCO and the, all the details about it, the word battle group is used. Now, to me, a battle group is not the same as a peacekeeping mission. And our peacekeeping missions are UN mandated. And to me, that's what it's about. Now, the Taoiseach did a visit to Africa recently, and he was in two countries, Mali and Ethiopia. And in Mali, he was visiting our troops, but our troops are on an EU training mission there, which could be seen as being directed by France, because Mali has a lot of resource, uranium resources which France needs. There is also a UN mission in Mali. So why were we not part of the UN mission? And then the Taoiseach went to Ethiopia, where the focus was on our more humanitarian program, which is about health and rural development and empowerment of women. So I, I'm just seeing um, an increasing contradiction that that is emerging. Now, nobody would deny our troops being upskilled and having all the skills that are necessary. Mm. But I think we're moving into a different arena and I would be very concerned about that. Uh, and that we wouldn't be under a, a blue flag, uh, that yes. we could be in a war zone and yeah. uh, a zone where there's yeah. a, a front line and we'd be exactly. on one side or yeah. the other of that yeah. line. Yeah. Whereas we know mm. our troops on peacekeeping missions really engage with the communities where they are. They build up great relationships with them and they, they have that respect. And that's why Ireland is so, is so respected throughout the world for our, our human rights. I did refer to a report, a debate that was in the European Parliament Parliament last May, which was accepted 493 votes to 183. And the report was about PESCO's complementarity with NATO. And it also was about that EU member states should be capable of launching autonomous military missions, where NATO wasn't willing to mm. act. And I think it's just, it's a dangerous scenario. And that means uh, going to war. It, it does. And mm. you know, that, that means a, a European army yeah. with Irish boys yeah. going to war. Yes, yeah. And despite the protestations from the minister that it's about skills for, for, our, our, for our defence forces and that PESCO, etc., is not going to cost us any more money, it, it just does not ring true. I do not understand, I cannot understand mm. why we are allowing this to happen. Well, we are. It would seem we're going to allow it to happen uh, yeah. with uh, the support of Fianna Fáil uh, again. Yeah. Uh, they're very much yeah. uh, in favour of uh, this, uh, but there yeah. are some contrarian voices and one of them will stand out. Were you surprised? At uh, the position take by, taken by Sean Barrett, uh, people will know Sean Barrett, mm-hmm. Fine Gael yes. TD, was yeah. uh, the Count Corla up yeah. to very recently, yeah. and he was previously a Minister for mm-hmm. Defence. Yeah. Uh, and he says uh, that yeah. uh, this is, in effect, uh, the first mm-hmm. step towards the European Army, and he doesn't mm-hmm. want us out there in this creepy, yeah. crawly, step-by-step way, mm-hmm. joining the big boys. Yeah, I'm on the, the Foreign Affairs Committee here, which also includes Defence and Trade, and John Barris is also on that. So I would have been aware of his views before he spoke in the Doyle, because he has expressed those views on a couple of occasions at committee when Minister Kyo has been in with us. And I think it's, it's, I think it's very telling. I think it's a very significant statements that he's been making as a former Minister for Defence who would have visited our forces throughout the world the UN, on UN peacekeeping missions <clears throat> excuse me, and knows exactly what they do and the great work that they have been doing, you know.
Mm. Um, but it, it is almost a foregone conclusion that this is yes. uh, going to be voted in. Uh, yeah. uh, and then what does it mean, do you think? Um, well, it just means it's another step that we are becoming more part of that militarization agenda that, that, that Europe is developing. And I mean, there have been some rather scary um, comments, you know, from various officials in the EU. And I think we're also seeing now what's happening in Venezuela. I mean, I was totally taken aback when Ireland came out to support the self-proclaimed president. And that's not to deny the problems that there are in Venezuela. But why are we not condemning the sanctions that have been brought in against Venezuela and there is a real danger of a military invasion of Venezuela and we are part of a European voice that is denying President Maduro and is denying any possibility of you know this being resolved through diplomatic channels and through negotiations. Yeah, and there were a, a lot of uh, people very concerned. Uh, Sean Barrett, as I say, yourself, mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Pringle, uh, members of uh, the yeah. left-wing party, yeah. Sinn Féin, uh, opposed yeah. to this and so on. But it has yeah. gone pretty much under the radar and it, it is has. a question of Irish neutrality. Now, I said mm-hmm. at the outset that perhaps one of uh, the reasons for that is the focus that we've had on Brexit. Yes. Uh, do you think yeah. that this uh, <laughs> is in any way tied to Brexit, that this is part of uh, the deal for European support? We support a European army. Well, I had been suggesting at my leader's question, I was questioning, we, we were looking for a seat on the Security Council, and that requires getting, I think it's 190 votes. And, you know, I mean, it's part of the whole diplomatic scene. We, we, we were on the Human Rights Council before, we were on the Security Council before, but obviously I'm not suggesting there are any deals being done which could backfire on us, but obviously you're going around looking for these votes. So what are you saying um, you know, you, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Is there something like that going on? Um, that, that, that we are moving away from our traditional neutral stance, which has stood to Ireland, you know, so well. We know what it's like to, to have conflict in your country and the importance of peacekeeping and the importance of negotiations. So that's my fear, and I just cannot understand. Um, Brexit, are the things going on? You know, obviously the focus has been on Brexit. But what's more serious, I think, is the fact that there's no awareness among the public, a lot of the public, about mm. what is happening and the implications. Uh, and what is your view? Uh, I mean, are we talking about the creation of a European army, Ireland taking the first step towards joining that army, and a situation which could ultimately lead mm-hmm. to Irish boys being conscripted yeah. to go to war? Yeah. Well, I, I, we know our history when, when we were under threat of conscription, so uh, I, I wouldn't go that far to think that, right. that that would happen. But what we are, we are seeing is, is this whole kind of European program um, to bring about an army. And there were very alarming comments from very high up people in the EU about the need mm. for, a, for a European army, um, which is mind-boggling, to put it mildly. But it's, again, we're, we don't have enough debate about this because it is threatening our neutrality, and that's in our constitution. Mm. So I think there, is a con- there could be a constitutional issue here. All right. Uh, and you were asking, why are we doing it? Who, who are we defending ourselves yeah, from? Well, who, yeah. who, who are yeah. our enemies? Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, traditionally, Ireland has not had enemies. We're not in danger of being invaded by anyone. Um, and yes, we're, we're being part of this. And I go back to the point, no one is against our defence forces being upskilled, having the skills to do their work. But those skills are part of UN-mandated peacekeeping missions.
Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Many thanks okay. for joining us uh, this right. morning. Uh, that vote uh, will take place later today and uh, as uh, said already, expected uh, to be passed by the Dáil. Uh, with uh, our thanks uh, to Independent TD for Dublin Central, Maureen O'Sullivan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Last week, party leaders and uh, constituency colleagues paid uh, tribute to deceased TDs Seymour Crawford and Brenda McGahan. We listen now to uh, an edited version of tributes paid to Brenda McGahan, who was a Fine Gael TD in Louth for 20 years from 1982 to 2002. Born in Dundalk in 1936, he passed away aged 80 in 2017. We proceed now to expressions of sympathy, sympathy on the deaths of our former colleagues, Brendan McGahan of Louth and Seymour Crawford of Cavan Monaghan. And before calling on members to offer their tributes to our departed colleagues, I'd like to welcome the families of both uh, Brendan McGahan and Seymour Crawford to the Distinguished Visitors Gallery. Brendan's daughters, Jill and Adele, his son, Connor, and their families are with us. And Seymour is represented by his nephews, Andrew and Alistair, and niece, Kirsten. You're very welcome to Leinster House today. This is a sad day for you all, but I hope that the memories that are shared here in Dáil Éireann today will serve to support you as we pay tribute to two much-respected and distinguished former members. I did not have the privilege of knowing Brendan McGahan personally. He retired from this house in 2002, the year I was first elected to Dáil Éireann. He was from a long line of political activists in Louth, stretching back many decades. And it is fitting that his nephew John continues that tradition, a familiar face for many of us uh, in Leinster House today. Few of us would doubt that Brendan's 20 years here were on occasions politically colourful and sometimes contentious, with views on a wide range of issues which divided opinion nationally as well as in the county he clearly represented with such pride. Deputy uh, Declan Brennan. I want to welcome both families here today and equally to say in expressing a vote of sympathy, I think it's an expression and a celebration of their lives. Uh, I come from an area that, uh, believe it or not, was subject to many boundary reviews, so we were in and out of the Monaghan constituency and the Loud constituency on a regular basis. Uh, I got to know Seymour in relation to uh, health services and indeed um, Deputy McGrath has mentioned it, his, his guidance in relation to water schemes and I was very appreciative of that and I want to put that on the record. In relation to Brendan McGahan, I describe him as a man of his people. Others have said that he wasn't afraid to say what was on his mind. While he mightn't be in agreement with everything he said, he certainly was colourful and outspoken and often held those controversial views but he didn't care what others thought if he knew he believed he was speaking right. While he wasn't of my own political stand, it was said of him that he got on well with everybody, and I witnessed this for myself. As a young person coming into Leinster House, as a member of the Fianna Fáil National Executive, he never, ever failed to make sure that there was food available to me as a young fella in the restaurant. Indeed, I think the memories of him in Nundalk We'll go back to his frog marching of the constituency uh, clinic uh, to the town hall on the various issues on a Monday morning uh, where uh, the constituents followed him uh, like a real leader in to solve the problems of the people. And I think, like Deputy Howland said here today, it would be remiss not to make reference to the, the lineage of the McGahan family from TF to OB to Hugh to Connor to Johnny 
uh, and uh, who's here, indeed Johnny's father, who served on the uh, local authority. And I'll conclude, Chairman, by saying, having served with Connor on Loud County Council, it was always a privilege to work with him and uh, to wish his nephew, who will try to continue that dynasty, every success uh, once he doesn't take my seat in Loud. <laughs> Deputy Peter Fitzpatrick. When they began, was a gentleman. He was a politician. He was a family man. He was a friend. It was a, fa a very, very sad day for the people of Loud when Brendan passed away on the 8th of February uh, 2017. Brennan is preceded by his wife, Celine, and survived by his five children, Robert, Connor, Edel, Keith and Jill. What do you say about Brennan McGann? Brennan McGann was a great man. Brennan McGann used to call in my constituency office to give me advice as a new TD, and then he would take me for a walk through the streets of Dundalk. And when you walk through the streets of Dundalk, you had nothing but jealousy, because everybody knew Brennan. People used to say, Brennan... Thanks for getting me planning permission. Thanks for getting me medical card. Thanks for getting me a house. Thank you for absolutely everything. Uh, I'd like to welcome his, his family here today. I'd also, also like to welcome his, his close friends up there, Isabel, Kate, uh, J uh, Senator Jim Darcy up there at the moment, is, and, and Annabelle. Like, you know, this is just going to show that the people did actually travel from the door today. Uh, Brennan was first elected to the door in 1982 and, and uh, retired in 2002, two decades. Like, uh, I remember ben, the first thing Brennan told me was when he became a politician. He says, a politician requires a personality, not a party. And in fairness, I've studied that from, from day one. Uh, like, we could talk about Brennan all day today. Like, Brennan used to love soccer. He used to always slag me that he played for the dog in the League of Ireland, which was fantastic. And, like, you know, he really did like, and he's also a genius supporter. But he also loved the horse racing. And uh, I used to meet Brennan sometimes down in uh, Barry O'Brien's book, he's down in Key Street, and... Brendan said, Peter, don't be afraid to put your hand in your pocket. Give, give the locals a few pen. And, and, and he was always very good over there. Uh, uh, I remember uh, shortly before Brendan died, I, I remember visiting him in, in the Bournemouth Hospital. And then and, uh, I only intended to stay a few minutes. I ended up staying two hours. And I have to be honest with you, the, the knowledge, the respect and everything else that Brendan had was unbelievable. Uh, listen, I'm not going to go on too long, but I'll just say he was a great character. I remember when I, came to, when, I, when I became a politician, I joined Fianna Gael first. Uh, myself and Brendan didn't meet eye to eye because we didn't really, really, really know each other. So I remember the first time I met him, I was sitting in this kitchen in the house out, out in uh, Ravensdale. And he, he says to me, Peter, I don't know you and you don't really know me. And we sat there for about an hour. And after the hour, we became good friends. I explained the reason why I got involved in politics, the reason why I joined Fianna Gael. And, and in fairness, I, 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 one thing I will say, he did show me respect. I have nothing for admiration, and I just say it was a very, very sad day for the people of Loud. And all I want to say is I just wish the family and his friends all the best going forward. Thank you. Taoiseach. Ken Corla, in politics as in life, it takes courage to swim against the tide. It's one thing to stand up for your principles when they are popular and widely accepted. It's quite another to stand up and speak out when your views are unpopular or when you go against the views of your colleagues, especially when there is considerable threat to your life. Brendan McGahan's career of public service was defined by his political courage. He was a man of principle and a man of great personal courtesy. He had friends on all sides of this chamber. And in fact, he once remarked that sometimes he got on better with those on the other benches. Notwithstanding, he was very much an admired and respected colleague in Fine Gael, 
and colleagues valued his integrity and courage. The history books record how Brendan McGahan stood up to the Provisional IRA and shone a dark light on their dark deeds and cruelty. He famously refused to close his newsagent shop in Dundalk during the funerals of hunger strikers in 1981, despite threats to his life and limb. And throughout his career, he excoriated the Provisional IRA for their violence and their hypocrisy, and he gave voice to their victims. A teetotaler himself, he was disgusted by the glorification of alcohol and wanted greater punishments for drink-driving offences. I had the opportunity to meet with him on several occasions, but while I didn't agree with all his positions or all of his views, I certainly respected them. He opposed the abolition of the death penalty, as well as the decriminalisation of homosexuality. But at the same time, he supported the introduction of divorce in certain circumstances and defied the Fine Gael party whip to vote against hair coursing. Brendan showed the same tenacity and determination in the doll as he did on the football pitch at an earlier time in his life, playing for Dundalk FC. Between 1982 and 2002, for nearly 20 years, he represented the people of Louth with distinction, and he was a tireless advocate for the economic development of his county, and I think he'd be rightly proud of the progress that has been made in recent years there. Sadly, his wife, Celine, predeceased him, so we offer our condolences today to their five children, their extended family, including Councillor John McGahan, who is known to many of us in this house, and his considerable number of friends. Niva Lahed Anarish. Taoiseach, Leo Vradker, Independent uh, TD, Peter Fitzpatrick, uh, Declan Brannock, who's a Fianna Fáil TD, and uh, the Ceann Corlish on O'Farreel, speaking during expressions of sympathy in the doll for deceased TDs, Brendan McGahan and Seymour Crawford. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing, senior clergy from all over the world are in Rome where Pope Francis hosts a four-day summit beginning today on clerical child sexual abuse and protecting children in the church. The objective is to give bishops guidance on how to deal with the problem. Now, bishops may not be abusers themselves, but they protect priests because they're terrified that if there's an investigation or a trial, then their own homosexuality may be revealed. This is according to Frederic Martel, who publishes a book today called In the Closet of the Vatican and argues that bishops were so terrified of being outed that they were reluctant to report paedophile priests over many decades. Let's talk about this with Father Iggy O'Donovan, who's just arrived in Rome, as it turns out. Good morning to you, Iggy, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. I'm on a rather noisy street here in the centre. All right. And incidentally, Michael, I, I'm not one of the senior clergy you referred to at the beginning who are <laughs> gathering here. No. After my experience in Drogheda, I was promoted to the, to the back benches. <laughs> yes, you were banished. Yes. <laughs> but but you, you, as it turns out, you happen to be in Rome where this summit is taking place today. Uh, and in line with it is the publication of uh, this book by Frederic Martel and the claim that one of the problems in terms of child abuse in the church was the homosexuality that uh, is prevalent. In fact, uh, I think uh, there's a, a priest who he's quoting who estimates that 80% of people in the Vatican are gay. 
Well, first of all, I, I'd be very careful on one thing, and that is um, in any way equating uh, homosexuality uh, with um, pedophilia or child abuse, because mm. they're two very separate issues, and it would be a great pity if that particular group of people were to be particularly targeted with the paedophile problem, if you see what I'm saying, Michael. Mm. Oh, absolutely, anyway, yes. Anyway, but the, the, the point he sure. is making, uh, I, I, I would hope it is clear to people, is that because people were gay, and not just because they were gay, but because uh, they were actively gay, uh, they were holding their own secret, uh, and as a result then kept other secrets. That is true, and uh, many of them would, would have been quite compromised. There is no doubt about it that the um, incidence of homosexuality, would, I'd say, would be a good deal higher in places like the Vatican than in society in general. I'm not a specialist in the area on that, but that, that is my perception. And that's the anecdotal, the anecdotal message we got in Rome, where I did live over the where I have spent a good bit of my time over the years. And I've heard uh, colleagues and friends and Italian acquaintances saying that to me. So um, the, now the book by Martel, there are exaggerations that I have no doubt. And he doesn't give footnotes very often or citations. Nevertheless, if only half what he says is true, mm. if only half, let's reduce it by 50%. And that's been charitable, I think. Yeah. Uh, if only half what he says is true, it means we are in graver peril than even I had imagined. And um, the gay issue is an enormous elephant in the room. Now, what Pope Francis is dealing with this week is more, is more the child protection, the paedophile issue which is uh, separate, as I say. But it just happens that the book is being published this very day, the same day, in eight languages. Mm. And um, he claims he has meticulous research done and that he has spoken to everybody from cardinals to Swiss guards. This is what he claims, anyway. And um, he would seem to suggest, Martel, that this uh, situation is endemic and that there are simply closet gays everywhere in the clergy, but more particularly in the, in the Vatican. As I say, I'm not a specialist in the mm. area, and uh, I'm, not co- I'm not privy to many of the Vatican councils, you might gather. And I, I see from reports uh, today that he's highlighting uh, one particular uh, cardinal, a Colombian cardinal, Alfonso Lopez Trujillo, if I'm pronouncing his yeah, name yes. correctly. Trujillo, yes. Uh, and he, he says that this particular cardinal was anti-gay and pro-family, uh, but in private, he was sleeping with male prostitutes, and he contends the more homophobic the clergy or the bishops or the cardinals were, the more likely they were to be gay. Yes, and uh, the, more, the more likely, yes. The greater the homophobia, very often it disguises the fact that the, that the homophobe is himself gay. And gay people have said to me, and uh, I know one, I won't name the person, but they would be a very well-known person in public life, said to me that you can be certain that most gay people will tell you that among their chief tormentors and abusers, but the tormentors are people who themselves are secretly gay, and their way of projecting it is to uh, attack mm. other members of the gay community, and then later on, very often, they themselves are outed. But it's an interesting psychological condition that you would persecute, if you like, your own kind, 
in order to disguise your own little secret. There is, of but course, nothing. There is, of course, nothing wrong with being gay, and there is nothing wrong with no, being absolutely, gay. Absolutely, no, but, nothing not wrong. But, but just, but just, just if I can put the point, Yegi, there, there's nothing wrong with being gay, and there's nothing wrong with being gay in the eyes of uh, the church. But there is something no. wrong with being sexually active in the eyes of the church. Well, whether, the pro- you see, the problem there is what you're talking about is hypocrisy. Whether you're whether you're gay or heterosexual, you're supposed yes, to be celibate. You're, celibi- you're supposed to be celibate as a priest. You're, you're expected. You're expected to be to be to be celibate. And um, but uh, over the years, I've heard very, very little talk about this. And um, when I was drawn over the coals myself over various things, was usually over some silly, simple little silly thing that I was accused of. But never the, uh, th- these issues never came up. And um, but insofar as they shall be called quote unquote lay people are concerned, I think what they wouldn't accept would be hypocrisy. The fact that you're preaching one thing and doing another. And it is a fact. Mm. And uh, even if Martel is exaggerating a little bit here and there, I think his 80% might be slightly on the high side. But let's make it 50. Right. It would be still way, way above the the norm in society in general. And uh, it would indicate that where where we have set a very high bar for other people, namely lay folk, uh, we are not very good at jumping that bar ourselves, or jumping it at all, in fact. But is it even and, of that uh, much surprise? I mean, it's not that long ago that we were talking about what seemed to amount to gay orgies at Maynooth Seminary and how seminaries were jumping from bed to bed, it would seem, on a regular basis. Well, clearly, if a person is of that inclination and the all-male set-up and the celibate, the all-celibate set-up in the seminaries would, indeed, if a person wanted to, if you'd like to get on the, in on the inner scenes, would certainly give them the more the possibility and the, the opportunities. But um, now, uh, I wouldn't like, though, that we take the most extreme case and use it as a generality. But, and the cardinal you quoted, the Arthur Kilo, he appears to have been a particularly lascivious um, scoundrel, to, use the, to, to say the very least. Mm. But the problem, Michael, goes back a long way because we now know, we now know that, for example, in the 1920s, when Mussolini was dealing with the Vatican, the chief, the chief um, contact with the Vatican, a leading Jesuit, was himself compromised and Mussolini's police had a file on him so that when that deal was drawn up with Mussolini in 1929, Mussolini had in his back pocket this file on the Vatican, and particularly on their leading negotiator at the, at the talks where the Vatican State was set up as an independent state by Mussolini. So we were severely compromised even then. And uh, so that when some people wonder how come we, mm. the church got so compromised with fascism at that time, part of it is the fascist, the fascist police had the goods on them. Well, and, and I, suppose, say, yeah, I, I take no joy because yeah. I'm part of the church. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I suppose and, people uh, have been asking for years, how is it uh, that members of uh, the clergy, people uh, who have, were told, at least, told that they dedicated their lives to God, covered up the most heinous of crimes against innocent children, uh, and if this is the reason, uh, it certainly doesn't do anything to justify it. Do you think, yes. that, do you think that the Pope uh, can bring about some consensus in the church whereby child I, protection is put to the fore. I'm of the belief that Pope Francis is a particularly good man and doing his very best. But, my God, he's surrounded by a team, many of whom are actively puncturing the football, if you know what I mean. Mm. They are, many of them simply do not want the reform that Francis is about. And uh, the Roman Curia is 
fiendishly, Gouria, for your listeners, that's the, like the government of the church. Mm. They are fiendishly difficult to reform. They've been in there for centuries. And, um, I mean, they would make, uh, you know, our political parties look like weak, weak amateurs. <laughs> yeah, but it's it, that long. It, it, is but it that they Francis, have secrets? Francis is a good man, and I, I place great hope in Francis, but I do know that he faces an uphill battle, that there's many, many, many snakes waiting in the grass. And is it that... that nature, hoping that nature will take care of him. Uh, and uh, are the snakes in the grass because there are secrets in the closet and the cure, you want to keep those secrets in the closet? Yes, and uh, the many, many do not simply want to change. Francis is quite a radical man in many ways. And uh, he, I think he's our best chance at the moment. Now, he's over 80. How much one man can do because they, they, it's a horrendous bureaucracy, centuries old, huge, with, and then so many vested interests in keeping things the way they are. Yeah. But I would rather see our church in ruins and disappearing than that it should in any way cover up injustice, and particularly the injustice of hurting little ones. Iggy, thank you for speaking to us uh, this morning from Rome. Augustinian priest Father Iggy O'Donovan brings our programme to its uh, conclusion today because our time has run out on us. Uh, Our thanks as always to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael and God willing you'll join us for our next programme tomorrow morning which will be with Cahill Dervin at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie